0: Matthew 5, verse 17. These are the words of Jesus. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Let's pray together. Our Lord, we thank you. That you have revealed yourself to us in your word. A word that we can study with concrete sentences, concrete words, concrete images, concrete actions that you have done. So that um, even though in many ways you are mysterious to us, in many ways you're not mysterious. Because you have shown us who you are uh, in the pages of scripture and especially in the person of Jesus. And we pray that you would teach us uh, to read your word, to understand it, um, to teach it well, that it might have the effect on us that you intend for it to have, that it would not just uh, create a, um, an external um, behavior of religiousness, but that it would penetrate to our hearts, to our minds, to our souls, and that it would stir in us true love for you and true love for our neighbors. So we uh, ask that you would give your spirit to now guide us into all truth as we commit ourselves to your holy word. In Jesus' name, amen. So um, we are looking this morning at a wonderful passage uh, that shows Jesus' attitude towards the Bible. Uh, really shows his love for the Bible, his love for the Scriptures, how highly he uh, uh, holds the Bible, and um, this passage that we're looking at. You know, we're uh, coming into a section of Matthew called the Sermon on the Mount, which is uh, chapters five, six, and seven. It's an extended teaching that uh, Jesus gives. Probably Jesus' most famous teaching is the Sermon on the Mount. And uh, we, this passage that we're looking at is beginning the body, the middle section of, uh, which is the largest portion of the Sermon on the Mount, which talks about these two kinds of. Um, Righteousness, you might say. So there's the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees, which is this external show, this performance of religion, where on the outside they, you know, they they affirm all the right things, they say all the right things, they do all the right religious activities, but inside they're full of of uh, hatred and. Uh, um, pride and uh, bitterness and lies and lust and selfishness and greed. All these things are living inside of them, and yet on the outside they look like these religious people. And Jesus is saying, I want to lead you into a true life internally, that your inner life would be transformed. And so this is the kind of beginning passage as he enters into the whole body, which is going to be addressing these two kinds of righteousness. And what's interesting in this passage is that Jesus shows us how crucial biblical interpretation is how you interpret the bible is uh, it makes the difference between you know is religion going to be this kind of oppressive show or is uh, religion going to be a life that just overflows inside of us and is a blessing to all people which one is it going to be it comes down to how you interpret the bible is what jesus says he says this is a life and death issue How do you read it? And uh, which, you know, is an important thing to say in our culture. Of course, you know, I'm sure many of you have had conversations with people where you say, well, you know, the Bible says this. And what do people respond with? Well, that's your interpretation of the Bible. Which is to suggest that, of course, there's all kinds of interpretations and they. They're all equally, who's to say that one interpretation of the Bible is better than another? You know, everyone's interpretation, however they see it for themselves, is equally legitimate. Jesus has a radically different view than that. He says, absolutely not. And actually, there are interpretations of the Bible that are deeply harmful. Deeply harmful to us and deeply harmful for for other people. And so, uh, what I want to do this morning is look at four principles for interpreting the Bible that Jesus gives us. Four principles, lenses, or you might say attitudes that we bring to the Bible that help us to actually read it in a way that gives life to us and gives life to others and makes it not a suffocating and oppressive uh, weapon, you might say. And, um, and that's my hope is just to really show you that, this, that what we have, that we have this book, is this is a well of life. This is a gift from God to us. And uh, it's because God loves you that He's given you this, and um, and so that we'd have the same love for these scriptures that Jesus has. So, uh, four principles we're going to be looking at, and the first one is this: first is that the Bible is about Jesus. <laughs> the Bible is about Jesus. All right, that I know that sounds very s- simple. Maybe that's obvious, um, but it's probably the most important key uh, principle as we come to the Bible to understand that all of these pages everything here is pointing uh, to Jesus the Old Testament the whole of the Old Testament is pointing forward to Jesus the whole of the New Testament is pointing back to him so it is leading us to know Christ is to know a person and to have Christ be formed in us, that we would become like him. That's the purpose of, of the Bible, is, is to point us to Jesus. It's about him. And what happens is, the reason why that's so important is because when we understand that the Bible is about Jesus, it transforms it from being something that is a, you know, massive, you know, I'm on page 1065, you know. So thousands of pages, uh, it changes it from being thousands of pages of burdensome obligations of things that are being demanded of me. It changes it from thousands of pages of things for me to do to thousands of pages of things that God has done, that God is doing, and that God will do in the world through Christ. And now it becomes a completely different kind of book when I realize that it's about Jesus. And um, and so Jesus describes it in this way in verse 17. He says, do not think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. That's his way of You know, for Jesus, the Bible was the Old Testament. That's all they had at that point. And a way of saying the Old Testament, all the, uh, what is it, 37 books of the Old Testament, uh, uh, is uh, the way to summarize all those is the law and the prophets. And he says, do not think that I came to abolish the law or the prophets. Um, I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. I am, uh, the whole of the of the Old Testament is pointing to me, has been preparing you for my coming. It is uh, to draw in you a longing and an expectation for my coming. So it's about me. So what does it mean for him to uh, fulfill the law and the prophets? Well, a couple things. It means, first of all, that Jesus fulfills the law. So how is Jesus, how is the whole Bible about Jesus? Well, first of all, Jesus fulfills the law. And, you know, what do I mean by that? You know, the law, there is there are large portions of the Old Testament that are devoted to, to commandments that, that God has given to Israel of things that they're supposed to do. So, um, and Jesus fulfills those things. So some of the commands, on the one hand, there are these commands that you might call the ceremonial laws the ceremonial laws you know if you read through Exodus you read through Leviticus you're going to find all kinds of things about doing sacrifices that it, you know when Israel if they were to come into God's presence you know they're sinners and so they would bring uh, you know a lamb and uh, the priest would would lay his uh, or the worshiper would lay their hand on the on the lamb and there was this sense of that their sinfulness was being transferred to the lamb and then the lamb was slaughtered and so the lamb w- was taking the consequences for their sin to make them right with God and Jesus is a fulfillment of that because He is the true lamb who dies once for all for all of our sins. So that the lamb was ultimately a picture preparing Israel for Jesus. So he fulfills it, right? Or, you know, you might take something of the tabernacle. If you ever read through Exodus, there's all these um, instructions on how to build this large tent, And, you know, when Israel came out of Egypt, they went into the wilderness, they were living in a desert, they were all living in tents, and God says, okay, I'm going to come live with you, I need a tent too, so build a tent for me. And he comes and he lives in the tent, and God lived among his people, and so Jesus comes, it says that the word became flesh and he dwelt among us. You know, if you think of the tabernacle as the place where heaven and earth were crossed over, where God's dwelling and our dwelling met Jesus became the true tabernacle because he became the place where God and man met together because he's fully man and fully God, and so God was present in his person. So he's the fulfillment of the tabernacle. So all these laws, all these instructions, all these ceremonies are fulfilled in him. And so that's why Jesus has to come and say, don't think I'm abolishing those things because they're going to stop happening when Jesus comes because he's, they're just pictures preparing for him, and now the real thing is here. So, you know, it's kind of like this when, uh, you know, Shannon and I were dating we uh, we started dating three days before she went to school at wazoo and I was coming to Western and so we had just started dating she's on the other other side of the state you know and so we sent lots of letters it was you know we were getting into email at that point we were, I think I had I, I, that that is why I got an email address, is the, is the email Shannon. Um, but, you know, your cell phones, you had to get, it was very expensive to call one another. So we had lots of letters and sending pictures. And so for that whole year, I would get these letters and these pictures, and, you know, I would stare at the picture and then reread the letter over and over, analyzing every word and, oh, what's, what, what was she doing? feeling when she said that what did she mean there? and so there's this kind of I, that's my connection to her is these letters and these pictures but thank god at the end of the, f- the first year <laughs> shannon changed schools to come something was drawing her to bellingham and she came to western <laughs> and so shannon was here and what happened to those letters i i stopped looking at the pictures i stopped reading the letters i put them in a box and they're somewhere i don't need them anymore i have the real thing and so you don't need the ceremonial law. You don't need the sacrifice. You don't need the tabernacle anymore because the real thing, the pig, the, I don't need the picture, I have her. And he says, I'm here now. So I'm not abolishing them. I'm fulfilling them. All those things were preparing you for me, for me, and now I'm here. So Jesus fulfills the law. He fulfills the ceremonial law, but he also fulfills, there's this other part of the law, the moral law, right? You know, the Ten Commandments, that uh, Jesus uh, fulfills the Ten Commandments. What does that mean? Well, how does a law work? You know, you take a law in our, in Bellingham, you know, speeding, uh, speed limits. What does it mean to fulfill the speed limit? Well, there's two ways you can do it. On the one hand, you can uh, drive the speed, uh, (laughs) right? The speed that it says. You can drive 25 miles an hour. You're fulfilling the law. You're doing what it commanded of you. Or you can speed and you get a ticket. And uh, the law says if you break the law, there's a consequence that needs to be paid for that. And so the law, once you pay the ticket, then the law's been satisfied. So you can either drive the speed limit or you can pay the ticket. But in both situations, the law is being satisfied. And so what Jesus says is when he comes to fulfill the law, he does both these things. He does everything that the Ten Commandments and the vision of human life that God has for us, he is that. That hope of what we picture, what human life should be, Jesus is wisdom. He is love. He is generosity. Um, He cares for others. He pours into others. He's sacrificial. He is all those things. So he fulfills the law in that and that he met its demands. But also, he paid the punishment to satisfy the law. Because all of us have fallen short of what God's law requires. And, and, and the, the Bible says, cursed is anyone uh, who does not do everything that the law says. And so he took our curse on the cross for us. Um, and the punishment that we deserved, he paid the ticket. And so in both ways, he has fulfilled the law. He is the fulfillment of it. And so on the one hand, uh, the Bible is all about Jesus because he fulfills the law. But also he fulfills the prophets, he says fulfills the prophets so the the old testament you know it has these instructions but the vast majority of the old testament is actually um, this uh, about the the unfolding of god's promises to these people uh, the israelites he chose a people to himself and he says i'm going to be your god and he promises them that there's this king that's going to come and the king's going to gather people from every nation to come and be reconciled to god and worship god and so there's all this expectation there's all this longing and jesus says i am the, i am the uh, you know, or this is how Paul says in 2 Corinthians, all the promises of God are yes and amen in Jesus. Jesus, uh, they all find their answer. So the Old Testament is this giant question mark, this giant longing, and Jesus is the answer. So, you know, we, uh, you know, I, I've, I've struggled as a parent, you know, in, in having regular times of reading the Bible with my children, my family. We've just recently kind of, it's been our habit for me to read just a chapter of the Bible after dinner. And we've been reading through First Samuel. And just recently we, uh, we read the story of uh, David and Goliath. And, you know, if you don't know the story, the, uh, David and Goliath is, there's two, uh, the nation of Israel is up on this mountain on one side. And the, and the Philistines, their enemies, are on, on the mountain on the other side. And the Philistines uh, send out what they call a champion. Goliath, he's this giant who comes out and says, listen, instead of us just having an all-out battle, send out a representative and, uh, who will fight this giant, the enemy, and if you defeat the giant, you've defeated the whole enemy. And Israel's up on the mountain and no one wants to go, not even the king, and it turns out that God had chosen another king, David, and uh, everyone's waiting, who is going to go and fight the giant? And so, uh, David, who's he's kind of a boy, and he's coming to bring food or something to his brothers. And he's like, What's going on with the guy down there? who's yelling at everyone. And he says, I'll go fight him. And so he goes down and he fights him, and he becomes the representative, he becomes the champion for the people. And so, I'm telling this story to, to my kids, and I'm like, So, where are we in this story? <laughs> Who are we? Are we the ones who go and fight the giant? Are we the king, the promised king, the anointed one who goes and fights for all the people? No, we're the we're over up on the mountainside, <laughs> trembling in fear, but cheering for the king who goes and fights for us. And uh, and after you know, and we said that, and, and immediately Lucy says, you know what? I, I know what you're saying. David's a better, or Jesus is a better David, isn't he? Jesus is the king who goes and he fights for us. That story is stirring in us and a longing for a king who will come and defend us and fight our enemies for us and we'll get to share in his victory and we're cheering on the on the mountainside watching him do it. <coughs> and then Lucy says this. She says, "You know, what I love I love Jesus the better Adam. Jesus is better Noah. Jesus is better Abraham. Jesus is better Jacob. Jesus is better uh Jesus the better Moses." <laughs> Jesus is a better David Jesus, she, had, she had read Esther recently Jesus is a better Esther too and the whole, thing, the whole thing is anticipating, stirring a longing and Jesus says I am the one that you've been waiting for I be, the one that you've been longing for and actually there's this great, in this little line that he says in verse 17, you hear what he said do not think that I have come you know we, we glance over that, I have come, what is that what do you mean you came from where In that little phrase, Jesus is saying, I've come from heaven. I've come from God. And he is saying the whole storyline of the Bible is not about us. There's this God who is um, making demands on us that uh, is constantly trying to get us to please him. This angry God is a God who is coming to us. And he says, I am God, come to you. I am that story. And so this, this understanding of the Bible... That it's about Jesus and that he fulfills it. He fulfills the law and he fulfills the prophets. Is the most important uh, lens, attitude that we bring to the Bible. And when we read it in that way, it has the power to absolutely transform our life. Okay? But when we understand that, we're ready for the second principle. So first, the Bible is about Jesus. But second, the Bible is authoritative. The Bible is authoritative. Um, We come to the Bible understanding that it is an authority, that we do not stand over the Bible, kind of judging it in authority over it, saying what it says, it stands over us and and speaks over us. It has authority over us. And this is, you know, of course, also an important um, uh, thing to say in our culture because, you know, many, you know, average Bellingham person would probably chafe at that kind of that the Bible has authority over my life. It, it can, you know, tell me what to believe and what I should do. It can make demands on my life. And, um, you know, I just, over these last few days, I went to a conference uh, and uh, with a guy named Dallas Willard, he, uh, and he, he said a number of things that were very helpful that in some of his things are going to be coming through as, as we go along here. But um, one of the things that he said that was very interesting is that human beings are the kind of beings that have to learn. To, being human looks like learning. Like t- human health, human humility looks like being a learner, that your whole life you're going to be learning. Uh, and, and that's actually what it looks like to feel alive, is to be a learner. But then he goes on and he says this, when we think authority is suspect, we don't think we have to learn. When we think authority is suspect, we don't think we have to learn. And when we have an attitude that no one, nothing, can have authority over my life, no, nothing can tell me what to believe or to do, you cease to become a learner. Because you say, I have nothing to learn. I have nothing that anyone needs to tell me or that no, no, no one else is an expert over my life in. and But um, what we see in this passage is it's loaded with Jesus emphasizing his own authority and the authority of the scriptures. Look at this, this little statement in verse 18. He says, truly I say to you. Truly I say to you. Now you might pass over that, truly I say to you, but um, this is going to be a statement that he's going to repeat through the Sermon on the Mount where he's going to say, well, you've heard it said, you know, and he'll either quote some tradition or he'll quote Moses, the Old Testament, you've heard that it said, da, 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 but I say to you, and what he's saying is that I have authority to speak into your life and to make commands in your life. And uh, actually, it's very different than the Old Testament. You know, in the Old Testament, these prophets would come and they say, thus says the Lord. You know, I, they wouldn't say, I say to you. They'd say, this is what the Lord says. I'm going to pass it along to you. Jesus comes and he, because he is the Lord, he is God become a man. He says, I say to you. And that the words of, and he, and then uh, uh, he um, goes on to say, uh, well, I'll come to that. Okay, so he is establishing the authority of himself, of his own words, and the authority of the scriptures. He says, I'm not abolishing the law, I'm upholding them. And what he says is that the, the Bible should have authority, first of all, over our minds. And this is, you know, this is, this is obviously important. A lot of cultural points where this, this is touching our culture, but um, <clears throat> that um, many people would, it's very common for people to think that you cannot be a thinking human being and actually believe the Bible. That you can't you can't actually be rational. You know Christians are emotional, uh, believe anything kind of people, but you can't be thinking kind of people. And Jesus says, um, and, and of course this is very problematic if you're a disciple of Jesus, right? <laughs> because um, how, if you don't believe that the Bible is true, how is the Bible ever going to tell you what to believe or what to do? How is the Bible ever going to challenge you? Because if you can ever say if you can say, well, there's parts of the Bible I believe and there's other parts of the Bible I don't believe. What are the parts that you're going to believe? The parts you already agree with. The parts you already do. (laughs) You know, the parts that don't challenge you. And it's the things that cut most acutely to your sensitivities are going to be the things that you're going to start to say, the Bible's not true on that. And yet those are the things that you most importantly need to believe the Bible's authority about, because that's where you need God to challenge you. That's where God's saying things that you wouldn't have said, you wouldn't have thought, that you weren't expecting. And so it's crucial as Christians uh, that we see the Bible has that kind of authority. And what we see in Jesus' words here, verse 18, he says, For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. He says the words of, that God gave in the scriptures are more solid. They, they do not move. They're more solid than the earth itself. They're more enduring than the earth itself. They, um, they can't be moved. If you can move mountains, if you can move continents, uh, you can't move the word of God. That's Jesus' view of the scriptures. And I think that, uh, of course, um, uh, it presses us with a question that, do I believe Jesus? Because most of it, when we say you can't be a thinking human being and believe the Bible, you realize what we're saying then. Jesus is not a thinking human being. <laughs> My professor at Western is a better thinker than Jesus whose words have endured 2,000 years and have transformed cultures. But the words of my professor are stronger than his words. I'm not inclined to believe that. I'm inclined to believe that Jesus is smart. And if he can believe these words, if he can trust in them, I can trust in them too. And I'll just tell you, you know, just, just as a point of encouragement, look at the Bible. The Bible was written over 1,500 years by 40 different authors, three different languages, multiple uh, cultures, multiple continents it was written in, and yet somehow these 40 different authors over in different generations, different centuries, somehow managed to write a unified coherent story that makes sense. That all ties together. They don't contradict one another. It's, it's, if, it's because God has been orchestrating and, and overseeing the whole thing. And that's what you see with Jesus here. Is that he doesn't just believe that the, the Bible has good, true principles about it. But what does he say? Not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until it's accomplished. Every word has been carefully guided by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. This is called verbal plenary inspiration. That God has been guiding by his Spirit. Actually, you know, the iota. The iota is the smallest Greek letter. Even those little letters, even the little, you know, dotting the I's, the crossing the T's, God has been guiding and orchestrating all those things. And so as you read the Bible, you can actually, you can meditate on those. You can trust them and know that this is an authority and I'm, I'm listening to the words of God. And, um, you know... Um, let me, I, I'll just make one comment, you know, sometimes I'll talk about the Greek, you know, I'll say, you know, this word, the real word is this Greek word, and I'll say, and, and, you know, sometimes people can uh, feel like, wow, can I, am I really reading the true Bible when I, I'm reading the English, because this is a translation, you know, the, the New Testament is a translation from Greek into English, is it really what it's saying, you know, and let me just tell you that these translations are very good. You can come to the English translation and feel very confident that what you're hearing in English is the words of God. You can open your heart to it. You don't have to be suspicious of it. You can trust it. But um, Jesus has a very high view, uh, view that these words should have authority over our intellect and our mind. And you can be a rational thinking human being and believe that. But the reason why that's important to have that the Bible has authority over our mind is not just so that we believe right things and we affirm the right things, but it is to move past that so that it also has authority over our hearts that the scriptures would have authority over our hearts because your heart is is where your will is it's it's where you make decisions about how you're going to act how you're going to live what you're going to do and that Jesus is saying is that it should have authority um, of of what we do we should heed what it commands right you look in that next verse there in uh, uh, what is that verse uh, 19 therefore whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Jesus takes deadly seriously that our hearts, our will responds to the word of God with obedience. That it has authority over our lives to do what we it, to do what it says. And, um, you know, I put a, a quote for you on page three of your bulletin from C.S. Lewis. C.S. Lewis is a book called Experiment and Criticism that he wrote late in life. It's actually about, not about reading the Bible, but about uh, observing art. You know, whether you're reading a, a literature, whether you're listening to music, or you're looking at a painting, that's what he's talking about in this picture. And he describes how, if you're going to really understand something, he describes the kind of disposition you should have towards it as you approach it. And this is what he says. We must not let loose our own subjectivity upon the pictures and make them its vehicle. So if you're looking at a painting or something, you you must not just let loose your subjectivity. We must begin by laying aside as completely as we can all our own preconceptions, interests, and associations. We must make room for Botticelli's uh, Mars and Venus by emptying out our own. We must use our eyes. We must look and go on looking till we have certainly seen exactly what is there. We sit down before the picture in order to have something done to us, not that we may do things with it. You see that? That's what we do with the scriptures. We sit down to the scriptures, not so we can inject our ideas into the scriptures, but for it to do something to us. The first demand any work of art makes upon us is surrender. Look, listen, receive, get yourself out of the way. If that's true for our work, how much more as we come to the authority of Scripture, the first demand that Scripture makes upon us is surrender to its authority. Okay? So, wow, I'm only through two points of four. So, we got a lot to say about this, I guess. All right? So, two principles. The Bible's about Jesus. The Bible is authoritative. The third principle is this. The Bible should be taught. The Bible should be taught to us. And what Jesus... uh uh, acknowledges here is that we are going to, uh, to come to an understanding of the scriptures through teachers, right? That's what he says, verse 19, to read that again. But whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. So he understands that the way that we're going to come to understand the Bible is someone's going to teach us, someone's going to open it to us and explain it to us, right? And so that's why, you know, Jesus has given teachers to the church, and you know that 's uh, like for me i god 's called me to be a teacher in the church and that 's why partly when I became a Christian, um, God gave me a fascination with his word, and I just studied it, and I read it and I wanted to understand it and I was sixteen years old, and it turns out that what he was doing in me was he was preparing me because he, he he had a calling. That um, that I would teach in the church, and he does that um, with people, gives them special gifts to understand and to be able to open the scriptures. And we need that. I need that. I, it's not just that I that I'm opening the scriptures to you. I need I read books about the Bible, and I need people to understand the scriptures to me. And um, and so what that means is that we need to surround ourselves with teachers who are explaining and opening to make sense of the Bible to us. And so um, you know that's actually with each other right you know the uh colossians says let the word of christ dwell in you richly teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom you're supposed to teach and admonish we're supposed to learn from each other you know now you can get sermons online you can go listen to preachers who are way better than i am and listen to them and put them in your car and as long as you still come and listen to me you can listen to them. <laughs> but uh the uh but we have great access to that you can read books and um And I think that's a tremendously important part of how do we interpret and understand the Bible is that it's a community effort. It's not something I do by myself. It's something I do through God's people and as a community teaching one another. And uh, what will make you a fruitful interpreter of Scripture is to have a teachable spirit. Is that when you have a teachable spirit that my heart is open to be taught, you will grow in your understanding and the knowledge of God is that if you have a teachable spirit, and actually I remember when I was a uh, math uh, graduate student, I, I had a, my favorite professor, his name was Bronco Churgis, uh, he's from Bosnia, he's, he's as smart as his name sounds, Bronco Turgus. He's, he's this great teacher, I loved him, and he was telling me, I was getting ready, I was applying to go into a PhD program in math, and he was telling me about what makes great mathematicians, and he said, what makes great mathematicians are actually not people who are really good at solving problems. What makes good mathematicians are people who are good at asking interesting questions. They ask interesting questions, and that's the teachable spirit. What does that mean? And so for us to become a community that has that spirit of what does that mean? You know, after church, I say something that rubbed you wrong or hit you wrong or it didn't make sense, and you're sitting out there having a donut, ask the person, do you hear what he said about that? What does that mean? And and try to have that dialogue, and and I want to learn. Who can I learn from? Who can say something I haven't heard before? And um, this is a key to interpreting and understanding the Bible well, is that we're teachable and that we have teachers. But Jesus gives a couple warnings, okay? A couple warnings. First warning is, while Jesus says we need to be taught, he insists that we need to be, uh, that we be taught correctly. He insists that we be taught correctly. Look at verse 19. I've already read this a couple times, but therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. Jesus says teachers had better not mess with what God is trying to communicate in his scriptures. Um, change them. Relax them. They, uh, there is, uh, and, um, you know, many people say, you know, why, do we nit- why nitpick about theology you know christians have all these divisions among one another and and um why why are we being you know can't we just all love jesus and get along and uh, of course this is a big challenge because jesus says yeah we do need to love one another and get along and yet he also says every iota every dot is the inspired word of god and and you should you should take every word deeply carefully you should have a fascination with what god's word really says and we shouldn't play with it and um and I'll just tell you that for me personally, I, because that kind of frightens me that I, I'm teaching you the Bible every week and I, I better not say anything wrong, um, I've put certain constraints on myself to make sure that, um, that I'm, I'm being faithful in that. So, you know, for one, we're part of a denomination. That I think really majors on understanding and teaching the Bible, and so it's not just Nate telling you whatever I think the Bible says, but I I'm um I, I have accountability to pastors around the country, and actually not just to pastors around the country, but to a, a theological uh, ideas that have been developed for centuries. So I honor the history of the churches to say, listen, I'm 32 years old. I didn't even grow up in the church and I'm just reading I'm trying to figure it out and for me to just say whatever I make up of the Bible is going to be true that's presumptuous and so I need that accountability another thing that I do is I just preach right through books of the Bible I don't skip a word because my temptation would be well they're not going to want to hear this we'll skip over that come to something that everyone will like Nate for saying and so I say I'm not going to skip everything I give these constraints because uh, Jesus insists that we be taught correctly. And so I need constraints on us. And so, of course, this means that throughout your life, you're gonna, there's going to be some diligence of seeking out good teachers. Who are your teachers? Who are you listening to? And are they people that you should listen that that are healthy to listen to? But the other part of that, of how do I know someone's a good teacher? You know, some of that is thinking through what they say. But Jesus says something else here the way you should look for a good teacher is Jesus insists that we be taught by example. Jesus insists that we not just be taught correctly but be taught by example. You hear those words at the end of verse 19, but whoever does and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. We don't we shouldn't respect a teacher who affirms right things. That's what the Pharisees did and yet it hasn't transformed and impacted their life. Has the gospel transformed who they are? Has it come into them? It, 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 that's one of the biggest things that we're looking at of our teachers. And, of course, that's a tremendously important for me, if, Of, of that, um, that what I'm teaching, all these things are things that I say to myself before I say them to any of you. And, uh, and um, actually, I was talking with Johnny Pools in our church. Uh, he's, he's a director of FCA, does, you know, vocational ministry and he was saying a similar thing yesterday he said you know I really try not to minister out of leftovers left you know leftovers from yesterday which meant I shouldn't be ministering to people because you know five years ago I was really walking with Jesus and I love Jesus and I'm kind of um, still uh, drawing on that what happened five years ago he said, I need to minister out of that I'm walking with Christ. I know Christ. I'm enthralled with Christ now. God is ministering to me. God is changing me now, and that's how I can teach others because I'm an example uh, that God is doing to me what I'm saying I'm hoping that he would do to others. And so this is one of the big things um, that we're looking for, and this uh, leads to probably the most important aspect of interpreting the Bible is the goal. Because these last two points, right, these are kind of dangerous, Right? The last two principles were that the Bible is authoritative and the Bible needs to be taught. And uh, you know, probably the average person in Bellingham uh, would would hear that, and uh, that would raise deep suspicions to them. I see what you're saying. You got this authoritative book that no one's allowed to question. And you got the authoritative teacher who's going to sit and interpret that, that book for everyone and tell them what they should think and what they should do and what they should believe. And I, I see what you want me to do. But if I do that, if I come in there and, uh, and you and lay on me this authoritative teaching, it's just going to create this show in my life. I'm going to put on a performance, this religious performance to do... Uh, do what my pastor, what the Bible says to, to want me to do, even though it's not what my insides want. It's not what my desires are. It's going to make me a liar. That if I come in and I live under authoritative teaching, and, uh, then it's going to make me a liar. It's just going to put on a show of, of trying to please God, and yet it will be completely inconsistent with what's inside of me. There's no way I'm going to let you do that. And actually, Frederick Nietzsche uh, says something very similar He says, one is most dishonest with one's God. He is not allowed to sin. One is most dishonest with one's God because one is not allowed to sin. Nietzsche says, whenever you have authoritative teachers, you always create hypocrisy. You always create a division where you have this inner life of these desires of things that you want to do and then you have this external shell of religion. It turns out, that Jesus agrees with Nietzsche, even though he doesn't agree with him on anything else, but he agrees with him on this point, (laughs) that God does not want us to have a divided life of an external show, but uh, internally we're a different person. He wants them united. And that actually that's one of the main things Jesus is doing in the Sermon on the Mount is to bring these two lives together. And this is the final principle of interpreting the Bible is that the Bible is life. The Bible is life to us. Look at verse twenty: For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. And uh, there's really a lot I can say about this, but um, <clears throat> let me just say... That what Jesus is saying about the scribes and the Pharisees is these are all people who affirm the right things, they say the right doctrine, and they do all kinds of religious deeds. And he says that their whole religious life is absolutely useless. It is a waste. And actually more than a waste, he'll go on to say it's actually wicked. Their religiousness is wicked because they are exactly what Nietzsche says. They are dishonest with their God. What they show on the outside is not who they are on the inside. And they are being dishonest with their God. And the reason they're dishonest with their God is because they think that they're not allowed to be sinners. And since they're not allowed to be sinners, they have to be dishonest with God. And so Calvin says, in his commentary on this, he says, By confining the law of God to outward duties only, the Pharisees and scribes train their disciples like apes to hypocrisy they were teaching them to have a divided life, a separated life. And if you have a separated life, that your inner life and your outer life are different, that is the beginning of death. There's nothing more miserable than to have to be in in that situation. And so what Jesus says is the purpose of the Bible is supposed to be our life. His whole project is to reconcile and renovate our inner life to God so that Christ would be formed in us, inside of us. And um, I know that for many of you, in your inner life, there's a racing. There's racing thoughts. There's burdensome thoughts. There's thoughts that weigh you down, that disrupt your relationships. And actually, the, you see that your inner life, and you can't stop it. I can't stop the thoughts. They just run, and they race, and they race. And I, I can't, it can't be any different. And the reality is, is that Jesus is giving you, God has given us the word and Jesus has come to bring peace and to bring the presence of God into our inner life. That we might know him. And you might say, well, well, how does that work? Uh, How does that work? You know, I I feel like the Bible is more of a burden. The Bible just adds more racing thoughts to it. Um, But let me tell you why the Bible is not a burden that adds racing thoughts. Because, um. All the things in our life, they feel like an empty cup, right? You have your job, you have your family, you have your spouse, uh, you have maybe church, uh, maybe relationships in your neighborhood, maybe your extended family. They all feel like empty cups that are just begging me to pour myself into them, and they're just constantly empty. And I need to pour, and I need to pour, and I need to pour, and it's never adequate. And so that's what creates those racing thoughts because most of those racing thoughts are that I am not adequate. I'm not doing enough. And the cup is never full. And it's always demanding more and more. And the fact is um, that the Pharisees and the scribes taught that the Bible was another empty glass that was demanding more and more. And what people in Bellingham, when they hear authority and teacher, is they say that that's what religion is. It's an empty cup that wants to suck my life out and drain everything out of me, and, um, and it will never stop demanding. But what Jesus says is that the Bible is a cup that's full. Listen to these first words again. What? I did not come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have, come, I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. The Bible is a cup that has already been filled. It's been filled with him. It's not an empty cup making more demands on your life. It's the cup that's overflowing with the presence of God, the promises of God, the grace of God, the love of God. And if you don't have the word of God in your life, you're living by your own effort. Bible reading is not living in your own effort. Living without the Bible is living in your own effort because this is the place that has the overflowing cup. This is the only overflowing cup. Every other cup is empty and asking you to pour into it and demanding of you, but this is a full cup. And Jesus wants you to come and to be transformed and to know that everything that's in here is filled with him and it's brimming over, As as the psalmist says, my cup is overflowing. So would we be a community that lives under this word and gets life from it, and would it transform our inner lives? Let's pray together. Our Lord, teach us how to read the Bible, that it would not be oppressive to us, it would not be a weight to us, but it would be life, refreshment, cleansing to us. And I pray as uh, my brothers and sisters here, open your word and maybe make new attempts to study your word that your spirit would be with them and that you would be with them, that you would teach them, that you would open up the iotas and the dots, even the little words that would come alive to them and would be fresh to them. And that uh, your presence, your love, your grace, your promises uh, would give peace to the racing thoughts of their inner life. I pray this in Jesus' name.